0: Welcome to the Sand Hills Media Ministry. We hope this production encourages and challenges you to live a more Christ-centered life. Okay, if you have your Bibles handy, <laughs> open up to 1 Samuel chapter seven. I, I have loved First Samuel. I mean, First Samuel for me has been a lot of fun, and I realize fun may not be the right word to, to use. I mean, it's been interesting how, how God has revealed himself in his power to both his enemies and to those who should be his children. And um, as he has expressed himself in that way, I mean, there's been a lesson learned maybe really by both sides. So for those who are newer to this or just to catch everybody up to speed, let's put our map uh, up here real quick. Uh, So let's review just a part of the story that got us here. So as we've been going through 1 Samuel, when we were in chapter 4, uh, we read that uh, Israel went to battle with the Philistines. Now that battle occurred in the northwest part of our map. So up there is Aphek, that's where the Philistines gathered, and then the Israelites gathered at Ebenezer, and they fought in between. So after their first battle, the Israelites lost 4,000 men. And after the battle lost, they came back and their thought was, it seems like God is fighting against us. So they literally had the thought, it seems like God is against us. So because of that, to address that, what they decided to do, uh, rather than try to figure out, in my opinion, why God was against them, they decided to go back and just get the ark and march it into battle and let God fight their battle for them. That, like that was their thought. So they go back to Shiloh. Shiloh's in the Northeast area of your map. And um, it was kind of like the Old Testament Jerusalem. It's not in the area of where Jerusalem was. Uh, but what it was, was the center of their religion worship. And so the high priest was there. The high priest's sons was there. uh, The tent of meeting was there. The Ark of the Covenant was there. So they go back. They get the Ark. They bring it back to the battle. And when they have this skirmish between Aphek and Ebenezer, uh, they lose again. And this time it's a devastating loss. Uh, They lose 30,000 foot soldiers. Israel's routed and then the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. And then they take the Ark all the way down to their center of worship, which is in Ashdod, the southwest part of your map here. Uh, So they take it, they they put it in their uh, temple complex with their God. Uh, And um, the next morning, their God is actually uh, found uh, bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant. And then the followers of Dagon set him back up. And then on the next day, it looks like God just straight up kills him. And so it's a great story. If you haven't read it, you got to go find this story. It's great uh, in, in 1 Samuel. You don't even have to go far. We're only seven uh, chapters in now. And so uh, this great stuff happens. Well, then God begins to afflict the Philistines, and um, he afflicts them, we said, uh, with tumors. Uh, some might say butt tumors. And uh, and and so, and then also with some sort of uh, plague-like infestation, uh, not just of a disease that travels from person to person, but also of, uh, it seems like, rodents uh, who have infested uh, their, their city as well. So uh, the people of Ashdod, trying to figure out what's going on, decide to share ship the Ark of the Covenant to Gath. And so they take it southeast to Gath. Uh, When it shows up in Gath, the same thing happens in Gath. They're stricken by this plague, these tumors, uh, death, and... um And so then they want to move it to Ekron. Well, by then, word has already gotten to Ekron, and Ekron is like, don't you send that thing here. And uh, they do anyway. It shows up, and immediately, they start having tumors. People start dying. The rodents infest them. And they're like, okay, this is dumb. Why are we holding on to this box? And so they make a cart. They put it on a cart. They put some cows uh, at the front of this thing. And these cows haul this thing to a place called Beth Shemesh. Now, when it arrives in Beth Shemesh, which is back in Israelite territory, it's the time of the harvest, the wheat harvest. And the Israelites are, they're overjoyed. I mean, not only is wheat harvest just a good time, because that's a, you're reminded of God's provision, and uh, this wheat that you're harvesting will be both food and uh, financial provision for you and your country. Then they see the ark rolling up, and when the ark on this unmanned cart, which had to be the strangest thing, comes and parks itself next to just this naturally occurring stone table. Uh, they look at this. They're amazed. There are Levites who live in that town because it's a Levitical town and you have to have Levites, priests, uh, who know how to work with the ark. So they show up and they're like, hey, we need to make a sacrifice to the Lord. We have two cows and a fresh cart. Uh, And so they just take them, they cut them all up and they burn them right there, glory to the Lord. But in the midst of all of this, it seems like some of the men took a a particular interest in the ark and it looks like they opened it up and looked inside. And um, you're not allowed to do that. God has rules about his ark. And so he strikes 70 men of Israel dead. And then, you know, Israel's dismayed um, because they were all rejoicing and now God has struck them. And so here's the thing. I'm reminded of this and we'll see it before we're done. Every generation of God's enemies and God's friends need to learn who he is. And you just, you have to show respect to a holy God. He's not your buddy He's your sovereign, he's your Lord. And one of the things we talked about last week, a lesson that came out of this for those men, was that we, we have to make sure we don't mistake God's apparent absence for the lack of his presence. That is, it may look like he's not there, but he is, always. And that's in our lives too. It may seem like he's not there, but he is always here. And, uh, and so this is how we get to where we are now, and hopefully now some lessons learned. Um, so let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 7. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came, and they took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord." So we open up here, it's been relocated to Kiriath-Jerim. I like how they say, too, they took it up uh, and they brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. You know, it's like he's talking to people who would like, You know, oh, he took it up to the hill. You know the hill? You're like, oh, the hill. Yeah, sure. Like, at the time this was written, though, for sure they would know where that was. Like, we may have lost it in time. But this was such a big thing that the ark was left somewhere for 20 years just sitting here at this one place. And I love this, too. So they come to this guy, Abinadab, they take his son, and they consecrate the son as a priest. And now here's the thing. It seems like Abinadab and Eleazar are probably of the line of Aaron. So these are probably legitimate Levitical priests. They're probably the real deal. And so they consecrate the kid. Uh, so it's not, it's not the same as just some randos, right? They're, they're showing up on some farmer's field and they're like, you know, hey, you know, Edgar, would you watch this ark for us? And, well, yeah, I'll make my son Ted the priest. You know, like, it's not, it's not a bunch of yokels doing this thing. This is actually, this is actually Hebrews. These are probably uh, priests. But then I love this interesting idea, too, that Eliezer has charge of the ark. For 20 years, he has charge of the ark. What do you do when you're in charge of the ark? Like, what is his job description? That's what I'm wondering. What does he do with 20 years? Like, I mean, isn't it just to check on it? <laughs> make sure it's... All right, does he literally just walk by every day and go... Yep, still here. Like 20, talk about a government job. Man, that is the deal right there. I mean, you're just like, might as well just stand there with a sign, right? And like, this is, you know, don't touch. Like, this is awesome. So he's sitting there watching this thing, doing his thing. No offense to those who have government jobs. I know you work real hard. It's just a joke. Um, and so uh, as he's going here, he's watching this thing. It stays there for 20 years. But it makes this comment. A long time passed And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. That is, the whole country is lamenting after the Lord. And then I'm wondering this, is there a really healthy way that we can lament? Like, can that ever produce something beneficial for us? So let me give you a really, I think a really practical, really easy one. So when I'm away from my spouse for any extended period of time, if I have to travel or do something, like I miss my wife when I'm not with her. And so after an extended period, I just want to come back, and I just want to hang. I mean, I just want, I just want to talk. That's why I haven't seen her. I'm like, I want to be around her, and uh, I hope she feels that way with me. Like, but, like, like, I long for that. And then I'm thinking, okay, so that's a microcosm, and all of us can relate to that, whether you've been separated from your best friend for a long time or somebody you, you love for a long time. Uh, you want to be back together. You want to reconnect. How much more so on a really deep and spiritual level when you feel distant from God? And my, my question is, can that distance you feel from God be really beneficial and I think it can. I think when you're struck to think about like, Is there something I've done? And here the answer is clearly yes. Is there something I have done, we have done? Like, okay, then how do we address this? How do I deal with this? And then when it's not just instantly fixed because you've changed your mind about something, when you've really got to stew on it and you've got to think about it and you've got to to go through some stuff, like, I think this can be really uh, healthy at times to lament our sin, to grieve decisions we've made and that this distance can create a longing that once satisfied will be beautiful, which happens in the next few verses. Go to verse three. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. All right, so now Samuel's back in the picture. Now, we haven't seen Samuel since the beginning of chapter 4, which means that he's been absent for about 20 years from sight. He's, he was still alive. But, um, but, and we don't know how old he is, but we do know when we last saw him, he was really kind of a child. And so now it's very likely he's kind of late 20s, maybe early to mid 30s, um, and now he's kind of stepped into his own as the high priest. He is leading the nation spiritually. And he just, he just basically stands before the nation. It's like, listen, do y'all want to follow the Lord or not? you went in and they're like yeah we went in he's like okay here's the deal it takes full on devotion to the lord that was his comment uh, gather all the lord or gather all the people together and he says you've got to put away these foreign gods and you've got to seek the lord with all your heart that's the thing you have got to put all your heart into this thing and so his call for them is a full release because they have actually drifted back into pagan worship it's funny like 20 years 20 years is basically a generation like, if, if you had a kid 20 years from now, that kid would be, you know, basically an adult and uh, around marrying age. And so that's a full generation. And again, every generation has to learn afresh uh, about the Lord. And so this generation has passed. Well, in the generation that has passed, during that time, they've begun to worship these false gods. And so the two gods they've begun to worship are Baal, all right? And so Baal, you have to know this, is the Canaanite storm god, All right, that's going to come back around. We need to know that. So Baal is the Canaanite god of storms. Not like Thor, just different, but just god of storms. This is what you need to know. And then the reference to the Ashtaroth. So the Ashtaroth was uh, a form, uh, a representative form of worship for a goddess named Astarte. And she was a goddess of fertility. But basically... To be real, she's kind of the sex god, is what she is. And so if you think about what Israel has gone into, the, the storm god is the god of power. Astarte is the goddess of sex. And so what they have done is their nation, many of them, have turned to a worship of power and sex. What does that do to a nation when that nation gets consumed with power and sex? I would tell you, you have firsthand experience because we live in a nation that is consumed with both of those things. And we need to be a nation that repents of the sin of what we've given ourselves over to. We have the same type of gods. We just have given them different names. And so here he calls him. He says, listen, if we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this right, you have to repent. One of the things I am wondering is, I wonder if they would be here if Eli was still the high priest and his sons Hophni and Phinehas were still also serving. And I don't think we would be. Uh, And and it makes me think of this too, that it is very important that we have good, healthy spiritual leadership. Uh, Like we need that as a country, we need that as a church. Like we've gotta have that in our lives. It's really important for us. And here Samuel is leading them uh, to have... uh, a, a. a heart of restoration, a heart of repentance. And, uh, and he is calling them for full devotion with all your heart. And Israel actually takes this seriously. Do you know after this moment that we're about to read about here, after this moment of repentance, there's not a mention of Baal worship for another 200 years which means they took this really seriously and they put away their false gods for a couple of hundreds uh, of years. And then he says this too, uh, if you will serve him only, he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And so there is this idea that you are rewarded for your obedience. Now, very specifically here, God is gonna give them a reward. But I was thinking of this, like if I were to tell you, follow the Lord and he will reward you, that's a true statement. And I would say it this way, obedience to the Lord and his principles really is its own reward. Like, it is just intrinsic to how God has designed it. Obedience produces its own natural rewards. When you submit to the will of the Lord, you're going to live the easiest kind of life. It's not going to be an easy life. Please don't mishear me. It's just going to be the easiest kind of life. When you commit yourself to the message and the mission of the Lord, when you live as a forgiving, loving, kind, gracious, generous person, you're just going to have the best kind of life that you can here on this earth. Also, there's a, a, a corollary to that, and that is disobedience is its own consequence. Like, this is just how God has designed it. When you walk in His ways, you enjoy the fruit of obedience. When you walk against the Lord, you, you, you counter what He has revealed, you're gonna suffer in life. It, it, it's like this if you have a disobedient child growing up in the home, they're, they're just a rebellious child, they're gonna have a very difficult childhood. And, and they will probably be the ones complaining, like, my parents are the worst. And be like, ah, I don't know, dude, kind of think it's you, you know? And then they're going to go to school and they're going to be rebellious at school and they're going to come out of school and they're going to be like, I hate my teachers. And you're going to be like, your teachers aren't real fond of you either. You know, like, like they create their own problems and people that keep going in that kind of way, you'll find that, that all of their life is constantly a disaster, but they are quick to blame everyone else for their problems. And what we find out at the end is it's the rebellious heart of you that's causing all your problems. And I do think there's something that connects with this. So I think if we walk in obedience to the Lord's ways, there's a natural blessing. If you walk in disobedience, there's a natural consequence. And, and here he's calling it. He's like, look, put away these old things and, and change. And so this is what happens. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, which reminds me of this. Repentance is more than regret. Repentance is more Than regret. It is not just that I feel bad about something. That's just remorse. That's just like I feel bad about it. Like, yeah, that didn't change anything. So their thought was this we feel bad about it, therefore we will. And they put away their false gods. And so, this idea of repentance is, uh, it ties into a Hebrew idea. So, here's what's interesting if you ever get a chance to study the languages. So, in the Greek language, there's a word used for repentance that connects to the idea of the changing of the mind. But the idea is really connected to a Hebrew understanding of repentance, which means to turn around and walk the other direction. And when you combine the two of those, it's a beautiful picture. And so, the idea is this I'm pursuing something counter to God. God's over here. I'm pursuing something counter to God. I'm, I'm seeking something that's wrong. Uh, Not right and I'm pouring myself into that and then when I repent I stop and I turn around and now I'm facing the Lord and I'm seeking him and I'm approaching him by the way that I'm living and I'm putting distance between me and the and the bad things that I was doing and so that's what they're doing they're repenting they're turning around they're walking the other direction and now they're learning to trust God so in trusting God now we see verses five and six let's look there then Samuel said gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you So they gathered at Mizpah, and they drew water, and they poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted on that day. And they said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. All right, so let's bring our map back up here. And again, I just, I like looking at maps because I want to be reminded that your faith is based on substance. This is real stuff, real people, real places, not every other Faith can say that. So here we are. Uh, So we've seen this whole journey, and we see where Kiriath-Jerim is, and then we see northeast of that is Mizpah, and it's here that they gather, and they're going to kind of rededicate themselves to the Lord. And so they have this ceremony where they draw out water, and then they dump it on the ground. Now, what does that mean? I have, I have no idea. I have no, <laughs> there's no explanation in Scripture uh, uh, about this and about how this plays out. But it is curious to me that they connect it to fasting. Now, fasting we do know about. How many of you have ever fasted for the Lord? Have you ever done something like that? Okay. So the idea of fasting is I'm denying myself something I naturally need and want. And during those times of hunger, I'll be reminded that it's God who fills me. And but instead of eating... I will pray, or I will read the scripture, or I'll worship, or so, whatever it is. I'm gonna, I'm gonna replace what I would normally do by way of eating, and I will fill myself with the Lord. And so people do that as a way to, um, I just sharpen themselves a little bit spiritually. Now it doesn't do anything by way of it doesn't make God do something for us or have Him answer our prayers or. It, it's for us. It's it's not for the Lord. It, it draws us closer, reminding us that it's He who fills us. Perhaps the water is the same idea. And of course, 3,000 years ago, water and even clean water would have been a much more difficult thing to come by. And so for them to take water, dump it out, and then corporately they fast, this idea of we know it is God who fills us, we are empty because we have not been seeking him and we are asking him now to fill us. There may be something like that uh, tied into here, but for sure they're seeking the Lord. So now verse 7, now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Okay, now this is interesting. So apparently the fear of the Lord has vanished from the Philistines. Like they'd had it previously, they no longer have it. Now a generation has passed, remember? And every generation has to learn afresh the, um, the, the power of the Lord. And here they are, uh, they have to learn that same thing again. Although, The last time they had a confrontation of some sort The Philistines reflected, we saw this in the scriptures, they knew the history of the Israelites even to where the Egyptians uh, were punished by the God of Israel to release the Israelites. So they knew that story. Well now, just 20 years earlier, the generation right before them, and many of them still alive, lived through the whole ark debacle. Like they've already been through this, they know the power of God a little bit. And so my thought is, if you're the Israelites, now's the time you get the ark. (laughs) Like now's the time, oh they want a reminder, just get that, march that through the camp. And you just walk through, you guys remember the story? Who wants a butt tumor? Anyone, let's see it. Like you, you can just walk through now and they, they would know. But curious now, they don't get the ark. They actually just appeal for God to defend them, which is really curious when you read the rest of 1 Samuel and you find out that the next generation is not gonna ask for God to protect them. They're gonna ask for a king who will protect them. That'll be a nuance in the story we'll study uh, later on as we go through 1 Samuel. But here they pause and they're just saying, hey, can you uh, please, Samuel, would you intercede for us and ask God to protect us? So it, it is strategic from the Philistines' point of view. That is, all of Israel has gathered in one place. And you have an enemy that you hate, it's really hard to get them in every single little town. But if they'll all gather in one place, that's the time to attack, that's the time to take them out. And remember too, that they've gathered for a worship service, they're not... They're not an army that's gathered to fight a war. So you've got people there who just came to seek the Lord along with women and children. So this is not uh, a battle that was anticipated. Now, there may be somebody here who would think, maybe, they're like, God, that didn't seem fair. Like they've gathered there to worship you and their enemies are rising against them. Like that doesn't seem fair. And I would just tell you this, from the study of scripture, that just seems normal. Like I think that's an experience you would have. Like if you've ever gotten to the point in your life where you're like, you know what? I am I am gonna finally I like I need to repent of these things, I need to get stuff out of my life. Like I say I'm a Christian, I say I love Jesus, and I've just got some junk I've been holding on to. Like I'm gonna get rid of I'm gonna focus on the Lord. I'm gonna devote myself to the study of his word, I'm gonna memorize his word, I'm gonna walk in faith. And when you start making decisions like that, you're gonna find your life gets really hard. Because the enemy hates it. Just remember God's got an enemy, and if you love God, you have an enemy. And that enemy will do anything to keep you from following the Lord in faith. And so this, when we see this, when they've gathered to worship and the enemy comes against them, that's, that's driven by a different enemy, not just the Philistines. And Satan does the same to us. And we experience that a lot of times, even in our own life. And so in verse nine, we see this. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and he offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. It's probably my favorite phrase in this whole chapter, the Lord answered him, because I'm reminded that when God answers prayer, crazy things happen, right? And let me say this, let me remind you, you need to be reminded of this. God answers your prayer, right? He answers prayers of faith by his people. Now, I wanna remind you of this from 1 John chapter five. 1 John chapter five, verses 14 through 15 says, this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything, all right, now these next words are very important. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. This was true 3,000 years ago. It is true today for those who are in Christ. So this is a promise of scripture and it bears fruit. Let's see what happens now in verse 10. Verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth all right, so I love I love this. The idea, you got a mass of people, they've gathered, they're worshiping, they're perhaps at their most vulnerable point. Philistines see this as an opportunity. They gather, they march against Israel. Israel's panicking. We're here with our wives, we're here with our kids. Like, this is not, we're not ready for this. And then God's like, all right, you've sought me out. You've asked my help. Let me show you what I can do. And so what's his response? He th- Thunders and I wish, I wish, like there's no way to capture this, but I wish we could have been there just for a, a bit to hear what it was like. And then I'm wondering too, like if we had to make the story, if you had to represent the story, like would it be that as the Philistines are gathering, would you suddenly have like these dark clouds kind of rolling in? You know, just kind of like ooh, ooh, I don't know about that. Like if you were one of the Philistines, you're going and suddenly it's getting dark. And you're like ooh, you back up a little bit, clouds pull back a little bit, you go a little bit further. You know, like I would just, I don't know. Or what if? what if it's a beautiful day? What if it was like 75 degrees? You're feeling good. You woke up with energy that morning. You know, you looked good in the mirror. Like whatever you're, you're head, And you're like, we got this. What if it was in the midst of that? Because there's just no description in Scripture. What if it was without a cloud in the sky and God just sends this boom, and it rocks them to their soul, so much so that whatever's going on, it sends them into this confusion. So it affects them mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally, like whatever this thing is. And it does the the opposite for Israel. So here's Israel. And I was thinking about this too. So when this thunder thing happens and all these guys there, the men of Israel perhaps unexpectedly, they whip back that robe and they're, they're strapped on. The men showed up with a sword. Now listen, 3,000 years ago, you just travel with a weapon. That's just wise. And so, they, and, and think about what's in their minds right now. Like you're gone there, you're in fear. Like God, please help us, God, please help us. And God's like, I'm gonna help you. And then he thunders, the Philistines go into a panic and you realize God has just opened the door. And these heathens came to wipe us out while we were worshiping our God. They were gonna kill my wife, my kid, my friends, not today. And so you just think about what was in the mind of the Israelites. I mean, they came after those Philistines with such vengeance that they wiped them out. Not, so, not just that. Keep going. We'll keep our story going. Verse 12. So Samuel will take a stone. He sets it up between Mizpah and Shin. And he called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued. And did not again enter the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. So that is when the Israelites responded. They didn't just respond to the force coming at them. They went back and got territory that had been stolen. Which, by the way, you want to talk about a metaphor in there for the spiritual life. I'm sure there's something there. You could uh, plumb the depths of that a little bit. But here they are. They go back, and they have this wonderful piece. And then in verse 12, Samuel takes the stone. And he sets up, uh, and he calls it an Ebenezer, an Ebenezer. So uh, this is, now we're talking about the fruit of the faith. The fruit of their faith. This is born uh, deliverance by God. Uh, they set up the stone called an Ebenezer. Now, maybe you've heard this term before. There's uh, an old hymn that has in there uh, this idea of raising one's Ebenezer. Now, I'm not an old hymn guy. I'm not good at the names of old hymns, uh, but it's a familiar song to many who've grown up in church and will be more familiar before you leave this building today. Um, And then you've probably heard the name Ebenezer Scrooge. I don't know how it connects at all. Just throwing that out there is another Ebenezer. But here's what Ebenezer does mean. Ebenezer means the stone of help, the stone of help. It's a memorial that God has shown up for you. And even last week when we were talking about that stone table, there are probably times even in your life where you need to set some sort of memento just as a reminder of like God showed up when he delivers you from something huge. I do think it's appropriate for you to maybe in some way mark that. Not, not everybody has to know, but the, the, that thing you put there or here that, that is a reminder of how God showed up for you, then every time you see it, you'll be reminded that God is a God who helps his people. Um, and this time again, they're, they're seeking the Lord's help. They don't They're not asking for a king, they're not trying to get the ark, they're totally trusting God and then God delivers them. And there's also this reference too that they have this peace with the Amorites. So the Amorites were the indigenous people. That is when Israel first came into the land of Canaan, uh, the Amorites were people that were there. And so when it says they have peace with the Amorites and with the Philistines, it means they had peace inside and outside their country. So for the first time in a long time, they literally have peace throughout their country which allows them then to prosper. And then in verses 15 through 17, we see this. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, to Gilgal, to Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. When we study Old Testament scripture, which we've talked about before, it's not always a, therefore now you thus go and do. But... When we look at how God has worked through history, we can learn things just as the people of God. There are principles that we can draw from this. And so for us, what might be lessons learned? Well, the overarching theme here was they had the people of God turned from their sin, they sought the Lord, and the Lord delivered them with power. So that's just a general principle that occurred there. Now, if we tie that to the idea that repentance is more than just regret... But they literally made some choices. Repentance is more than regret. It's more than remorse. They they literally put away their false gods. Uh, And then God began to do something. And in the end, he brought peace to their country. One of the things I was thinking about is... I do not believe that for our country, it's just over, That it, we're just so far down this road of sin, that there's no coming back, that there's no hope. Like, I do not believe that because we serve an all-powerful God. But I do know this, that, that when repentance occurred, it wasn't repentance for the outsiders, it was repentance within God's family. And in our case, it would be God's church. And so, for a whole nation to turn, maybe the secret ingredient, so to speak, is that God's people actually have to be reminded of who God is, and his power, his glory, his holiness, and that we need to stop messing around with maybe some of the stuff we've been messing around with. I don't know your life, and I don't know what you're into, or any of that kind of stuff, but I would say this. When we genuinely surrender to the Lord, it involves real things. There are things that we turn off. There's things we put away. There's things we throw away. There's things we confess. There's relationships we end. If we're messing around with stuff that we shouldn't be, we get rid of it. If we're looking at pornography, we stop. If we're flirting with somebody outside of our marriage, we stop. If we're taking advantage of people, if we're stealing, like any of these things, things that we know are out of line with who God has called us to be, we put those things aside. We stop pursuing the gods of power. We stop pursuing the gods of sex. And we bow our knee at the holy cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ then we can plead to the Lord for peace for our country. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we do pray this morning. We're reminded that this this God is the same. Lord, you are the same. So may we, as our predecessors, may we repent of our sin. And Lord, there's probably things represented by people in this room that we know we need to stop doing. Lord, I do thank you for those who are in Christ that you don't leave us to do this by ourselves. You've actually given us your person of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, giving us a supernatural power to overcome that which we feel is too powerful for us. Lord, I pray that we would be a faithful church, that our nation would be would be a nation full of your people pursuing you in a healthy way, repenting of their sins, seeking your grace. And Lord, I would pray that the outflow of that would be that you would put our nation right. We desperately need your intervention. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.